here's what I'll tell you. Um, we have a draft prospect this year who I've been working with since he was in high school. Um, he's a, at a major university, um, basically pitched at 93 to 95 miles per hour this year for the most part as a relief pitcher. Um, he would close for this Division One program. Um, season wrapped up, obviously, because of COVID. You know, he only had, I think, three appearances on the year. Um, and he basically, because that happened, like, you know, the season ends and he's allowed to do his own thing now, right? So he's doing his own lifting. And we were able to get him on a good, aggressive throwing program. Uh, he sent me a video of his bullpen from the other day. He hit 99 twice, right? And and what was the difference? Yes, it was training. You know, yes, it was a new throwing program, all that. That's a big jump. Like, that's an elite velocity that became ultra elite, like top, you know, 1% of professional baseball players. And what it really comes down to, they stopped running him into the ground. Hmm. Like, he was doing that in and out. Like it was just beating his body down. So he was able to display the fitness that he probably already has. So, you know, for me, work capacity is a very specific discussion. That was Eric Cressy. And you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, Simply Faster. There are a lot of sports technology companies out there, but Simply Faster is the only website you can go to that features an online store that covers the bandwidth of training technology, from force plates to timing systems to muscle simulators and more. Some products of Simply Faster that I use and love include things like the Freelap Timing System and K-Box, or coaches' favorites such as GymAware. Recently, Simply Faster has added two units that as a coach, you should definitely take a look at. The first is the Muscle Lab Contact Grid which is an extremely affordable and portable step-by-step, literally, system to collect data on jumps, bounds, sprints, agility, hurdle hops, and really as much as your creative mind can imagine. In what used to take a whole runway worth of of data collecting strips, the contact grid does it all with only two small strips that together cover up to 40 meters of sprinting. Ground contact time, step rates, rhythms, and beyond are at your fingertips with this device. Another new unit, the VO2 Master, is an ultra-portable gas exchange analyzer. Don't guess on energy system development when you can get direct insight into VO2 capabilities in relation to specific sports skills, rather than uh, being hooked up to tubes on a treadmill or worse yet, a cycle ergometer to get a VO2 max. Think of the VO2 Master as your own gas exchange lab without the tubes and wires. Deepen your analysis in the specific conditioning preparation of your athletes with the VO2 Master today. These products and incredible customer service make Simply Faster your go-to for your sports technology needs. I'm happy to have partnered with them in sponsoring this podcast. Their support has been tremendous, so check them out today at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Hello and welcome to another episode. Glad to have you guys here today. My coaching journey has been a really diverse one. Uh, one that started where it was very purely interested in sprinting and jumping and I guess you could say a little bit more lower extremity oriented activities. Uh, I was a track and field sprints and jumps coach for very much of my work for, for years. And although I did do strength and conditioning for sports like basketball and football, I can't say that I was really well-rounded because I hadn't really worked with overhead athletes, uh, true overhead athletes much. Um, fast forward a couple of years, uh, me now working as a full-time, uh, full-time university strength and conditioning coach, I work with swimming and tennis a lot. I really had to expand my knowledge of the human body and uh, get into the workings of the shoulder 
And one of the people who has been a big educational force in that regard has been Eric Cressy. Uh, not only in terms of the shoulder, really, but I, I've read Eric's work on back on T Nation. Now, this being T Nation when it did have a little bit more focus on athleticism and human function in the, the mid-2000s uh, or 00s. But I've been reading Eric's work for a long time. For those of you who aren't familiar with Eric's current work, he is the president and co-founder of Cressy Sports Performance, which is a preeminent baseball training performance training institution uh, with facilities in Hudson, Massachusetts and Jupiter, Florida. Cressy Sports Performance in the past five years has worked with 125 athletes that have been selected in the MLB draft, and they work with players uh, from all MLB organizations. In addition to Cressy Performance, Eric also works with the New York Yankees as the Director of Player Health and Performance. And Eric is, again, as I said, a a huge force in the world of coaching education and particularly in working with overhead athletes. For the show today, I wanted to get into Eric's journey. I wanted to get into how he has grown and evolved as a coach on a few levels, uh, one of which was uh, skill-specific work. And I, I came across, uh, I, I think it was within the past year, maybe a couple of years ago, but Eric uh, getting into some of the skill biomechanics of, of pitchers. And to me, I'm always interested in the evolution of the field and where strength and conditioning and or whatever the term for the profession is exactly, where it's going in terms of blending with sports skills themselves. So Eric is going to get into his experience with that and working with athletes beyond the context of just general strength. He's also going to get into his evolution of training the shoulder. As I mentioned, Eric has been a big uh, source resource for me in shoulder health and training. And so it was really cool to ask him uh, what's changed throughout the years and how he looks at not only the shoulder, but also just training overhead athletes in general. So Eric's is going to give us a lot of information on that, some training implications and resources. And then he's also going to get into his take in work capacity on baseball players, specificity of work capacity, and more. This was a really information-dense episode, and it was really awesome to sit down and talk with someone as as accomplished and professional as Eric. Uh, whether you're a baseball strength coach or work with baseball, overhead athletes, or not, there's a ton to be gained from this episode. And I think you guys are really going to like this one. So let's get on to it. Episode 203 with Eric Cressy. Eric, good to have you on the show, man. I, I'd love to get the the first question I had is, what initially got you into training baseball? I know it's what you're so well known for. Was it your primary sport? Or was it something that happened just by happenstance? How did how did you get into baseball? No, it's funny. I actually only played baseball until eighth grade. Um, I was a much better tennis player, and they they coincided in terms of the sports sports calendar in the Northeast where I grew up. So I played soccer and tennis growing up, and eventually got into powerlifting. I joke I, I took up powerlifting to convince people that I was actually tough. Um, and baseball actually kind of happened by accident. Um, I did get my graduate degree at the University of Connecticut. Um, while I was there, um, you know, we worked a lot with basketball and soccer. In fact, while I was there. Our men's and women's basketball and men's and women's soccer teams were all at one point number one in the country. So I had always assumed, um, you know, basketball being kind of like my, my biggest interest from 2003 to 2005, that I would go that route and certainly looked at some jobs in college basketball after I finished my grad degree. But when I'm going to the private sector, um, and it just so happened that some of the first athletes that I started working with were baseball players, um, you know, it was right when I moved to Boston in 2006 and um, really started up with four of those guys all from the same high school. And it was interesting, just, you know, took a liking to it. I had had a bunch of shoulder problems with my tennis career and there's a similar injury mechanism. Um, so I, I took a great interest in it and realized that this was a pretty underserved population um, where 
you know, I, I joke that, you know, they're kind of, the pendulum always swings too far in one direction, right? Either they give them the, the football program and expect everybody just to squat bench and clean. And then there's also the other end of the spectrum where it's like, Hey, baseball players don't need to lift weights. Just do some bands for rotator cuffs and some forearm work and you're good to go. You know, we figured out that, you know, you could train people in a happy medium there and push them really hard. If you were cognizant of the demands of the sport and the functional challenges that, you know, they had to overcome the structural changes that may take place. So, um, it just so happened those four guys, um, they won the division one state championship in Massachusetts in 2007. One of them went 12 and 0 on the mound and was state player of the year. Um, and you know, basically all four of them went division one and my phone started ringing off the hook. Um, so, uh, an article ran in the Boston globe on May 20th, 2007. I remember cause it was my birthday. Um, and so sure enough, you know, my, my phone started ringing off the hook and that led to us opening a facility and, you know, early on we were, we catered to everybody, you know, we didn't want to be known as a, a specific gym for baseball players, but after it grew and grew and grew in that niche, we, we realized, Hey, this is something that's sustainable that we can really get good at. We can train our staff in it and it's a differentiating factor. So we, we kind of created the market in that regard. Now there are you know, a lot more baseball specific strength conditioning facilities and all that, but it happened very kind of organically almost by accident, just from something I fell into and took a big interest in. It's funny you mentioned that you were a, a tennis player that got into powerlifting. Like, how often does that happen? Like, well, I've worked because I work with tennis, and I yeah. it's not um, maybe some of them I think joke about being bodybuilders after, but it's not like yeah. it's not super serious on their end. That, so that's a that's a, that's an interesting transition I, in of itself. I think it's every tennis player's dream. I always joke like every time we've had a baseball player retire, all of them like they just can't wait to like go in and bench press like the first day after they retire. Like in fact, we had a guy retired last year who who came in and he did double sessions. He benched in the morning and he was like, "I like that so much." He came back and benched that night. I'm like, "All right, your career is over. Go have some fun. You get a day." <laughs> yeah, it's that's that's what my tennis players will primarily do if it's like dead week or finals week, and I you know I'm not allowed to coach them for any voluntary <laughs> workouts and they get to do whatever they want usually you'll see them sneaking in some barbell bench press straight bar bench and all that stuff the stuff that they uh don't either don't get to do or don't get to do very much in typical training so i Absolutely. i definitely i definitely get that um one one thing that i'd seen uh in your work eric that i really wanted i'm really curious about is I know I, this is, I mean, my frame of reference, right? It's T Nation 15 years ago, mm -hmm. 10, 15 years ago, as I think a lot of people listening. And then recently in looking at some of your Instagram, you'll see you uh, uh, laying out pitch mechanics and really getting into the pitch mechanics side of things. And I think that's such a huge, if you had to lay out a spectrum between T Nation and getting into kinetics and kinematics of pitching, what a difference, right? And so yeah. um, can you tell, tell us a little bit about your journey and getting into more of the technical side as you've gotten further in this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's interesting. I probably, I want to say it was the off season of 08, 09. Um, best example I can give you is we had a guy named Sean Haviland. Sean was um, 33rd round pick by the A's out of Harvard. He was Ivy League pitcher of the year. He was a 5'11 righty who threw 88 to 90 miles an hour. And for those of you who aren't super familiar with baseball, those players don't stick around in professional baseball that long. I think he was a senior sign for, you know, a thousand bucks or whatever, but he loved the game and wanted to play as long as he could. And, um, you know, we kind of had that conversation. It's like, hey, you're not going to be around long unless you're a different picture when you go back. Um, and so you know, we sold out for the dream. You know, I was like, Hey, are you willing to be a little bit of a Guinea pig for this stuff and try some different things and, and all that? He was like, yeah, for sure. You know, use me. Um, and you know, he was a guy who, who changed his strength conditioning around. He threw the med ball more than he ever had, you know, he, he ate better. Um, but we also 
I basically just, you know, threw some, some poop on the wall to see what stuck in terms of a throwing program. So I wrote up a, a weighted ball and extreme long toss program, really pushed him hard. Um, and I'll never forget, I got a text probably January 20th or so. And he had gone back and thrown live against the hitters at Harvard before he reported spring training. He's like, I was 91 to 94 today. You're pretty good at what you do. And I'm like, I'm still not really sure what I'm doing. Um, but he had this, you know, this life-changing velocity jump and churn off. You know, he started since 95s, 96s. And, you know, he's an all-star a couple years in a row. And yeah, it's funny, he actually just retired recently. He's, he's working in the Red Sox front office now. But um, Sean was a guy like we just, we learned together. Um, I remember those conversations, like, what do you think of this? And, and we gradually test the waters of the volume we wanted to use in terms of our throwing programs and all that. And, you know, so that was kind of the first foray into like, hey, a, a strength and conditioning coach is writing a throwing program. That never happened. You know, either it was, the pitching coaches that did it, or it was like a rehab throwing program that came from the PTs or the surgeon or anything like that. But there wasn't a whole lot going on from a performance standpoint. You know, really the only guy back then that was doing it was, was Derek Johnson, who was at Vanderbilt. He's now the, the pitching coach for the Cincinnati Reds. But you know, these were things that were around for a long time. You can go back and look at, you know, Soviet track and field throwers and weighted implements have been around for a long time, but they hadn't really been heavily utilized. And, and what I started to look at is, you know, these have a place on the force velocity continuum. You know, we're, we're lifting heavy stuff, we're running fast, we're jumping high with just body weight, and we're throwing a five-ounce ball. But there's all these areas in the middle that we have to take advantage of. Um, and it just, you know, got me to start thinking a lot more about weighted balls, medicine balls, things like that. And we, we pushed hard in those those middle of the road. And looking back, it was, we had a lot of guys that probably had college strength conditioning experiences where they, they got a lot stronger, but it didn't necessarily, you know, give them great carryover. And, and training in those middle grounds, you know, seemed to have a lot of value. So that's been refined over the years. But the next step was, was logically, we, we just started to do our thing. We realized, hey, you know, there are things that are being coached mechanically that, you know, they're, they're well-intentioned, but they don't take into account the limitations an athlete has. Like sometimes he just can't get himself into the positions he needs. And, and I think the really important thing to appreciate is like, we still don't know what good pitching mechanics are. Everyone in the world will tell you they know. It's actually the most heavily debated topic out there. And the research is actually shockingly inconclusive. Um, you know, they've looked at inverted W, they've looked at the Tommy John twist, they've looked at all these different patterns that we thought were, you know, horrifically bad for the arm. And when you actually look at the stressors on them, like they're really not as significant as we thought, right? Not only that, we always thought like mound stress was the highest. turns out mound stress is probably higher uh, for the shoulder and lower for the elbow. So we're kind of like picking our poison to some degree. So there's all these things that we didn't understand. But one of the things I kept coming back to is we might all disagree on what is good mechanics, but I think we all agree like what a good lunge looks like, right? What a good push-up looks like. You know, there's a lot of competencies that, you know, we can all fundamentally agree on. And so what I, I came back to was like, hey, we should we should pick this low hanging fruit, um, teaching people to move well. You know, we're never going to have pushback on that because ultimately, like, you know, there's a, a great research from from Stu McGill. Um, he did it in conjunction with Exos down in, in Pensacola, Florida, where they looked at firefighters. And, um, you know, it's a, a study of firefighters. What does it mean for baseball players? Well, I, I actually talk about this a lot. It's a study I think everybody should understand. And what they did was they took a, a collection of firefighters. You know, one group basically was handed an exercise program, said, go do this. And another group was given, you know, a basically a program where they were actually coached through exercises. They had, you know, supervision, they were educated on proper movements, things like that. What they did was they pre-tested them um, on a collection of fire, excuse me, firefighter specific tasks. And they looked at joint loading 
And then they retested these folks at the end of um, basically that it was a 12 week intervention. And what was interesting is both groups improved in terms of body composition, VO2 max, all these things that you wanted to make sure were good outcome measures. But what was really intriguing was that um, only the group that had been coached actually reduced joint loads in certain places. They, they learned to move more efficiently. Um, so it was, it was important to, to appreciate because these firefighters had not practiced these tasks. Um, instead, they had trained in a more general sense. And sure enough, you know, all those benefits have been conferred onto a more specific action. Um, so I come back to if, if you move well in a weight room, it's going to increase the likelihood that you're going to move well as a pitcher in the box or anything like that. So, um, you know, I, I just come back to, you know, you have to understand what your athletes are doing, whether you're a tennis coach, um, you know, whether you're a strength and condition coach for baseball or hockey or whatever it is, like there are unique structural adaptations that take place because of the demands of those actions. And it's our job to, to make sure people don't reach a, you know, a symptomatic threshold or develop structural pathology in light of them. So you always, you always work backwards from what good movement really is. Yeah. When you were talking about the program for the the baseball player that that first pitcher that you had worked with it really made me think about the idea that i think in so many cases you need to almost get somewhere outside the field to continue to improve in the sense that i would imagine that a lot of that who knows adaptation and force is better than a strength coach right and yeah. like you said there's no perfect technique and in my world or one of the things I look at is jumping and jumping off two legs, especially there's lots of yeah. different techniques. There's no to think that you could coach someone. If you spend all your time coaching someone into a quote unquote perfect technique that doesn't exist, how much better are they going to get versus yeah. exposing them to a new problem to solve, new forces to output and new ways yeah. to do that. And it seems like, I don't know, it's just, to me, it's interesting. I, how, um, how have you, I, I mean, do you work with mechanics regular? I mean, I shouldn't say mechanics, Absolutely. but like, um, do you work now is your work now is this what i'm trying to ask is your work now a lot more than um working with pit people on on um like velocity in a more specific yep. manner yeah it's on a huge different level I, so what i would say is if you if you walk in our facilities you know we have pitching coordinators at both facilities we have associate pitching coordinators at both facilities so it's not even just what we're coaching in terms of the mechanics of movements or you know throwing programs like that we're actually digging much much deeper where baseball is you know, they've had a surge in data collection and usage over many years. And, and certainly, you know, my work in professional baseball, I get access to all this on a, on a crazy level. But, um, you know, you can look directly at how, uh, you know, physical competencies relate to mechanical proficiencies that impact how you import, excuse me, impart force to the baseball, right? So if you see guys that are throwing accidental cutters, you know, it's not just something that you see in terms of, all right, you're winding up with undersided elbow pain, but you're also looking at it's a, it's a fastball with poor spin efficiency. So, you know, we look at things, uh, you know, from a pitching standpoint, you can look at spin efficiency, spin rate, um, spin axis. Um, you can look at extension. You can look at vertical and horizontal release height. You can look at vertical attack angle. Um, there's so many different things that we can dig in really deeply on it. So I would actually argue like we don't just have mechanics coaches. We have a, we have a mini analytics department at both facilities and we can really like dig, dig deeply on a lot of these things and, and do some special stuff. But it's so powerful when you can start to teach people how the movement 
ones that they have or the ones that they, they can't get to impact how they're able to perform on the mound. Um, and baseball from a data collection standpoint is, is one of the really, really good ones. I think out the, in other sports, we see it more from a sports science standpoint, right? You know, you, you look at GPS and, you know, people trying to track how many steps a, you know, a basketball player is taking, how many miles a, a soccer midfielder is covering over the course of a game and how you look at optimizing recovery and, load management, things like that. And in baseball, we actually use our data even more for skill development. And that's a really powerful thing. Um, I'm not sure that you're getting that, you know, on a crazy level, you know, outside of maybe golf and any other sport. Yeah, I imagine the the field now too, especially in the private sector, where I think there's probably less potential silos is, I mean, I, I would imagine the field's really evolving that way. If you want to keep up and stay competitive, you have to have more of an intimate understanding of the sports skill itself. And you can't just be yeah. a general general strength facility yeah and i think it's you know that's that's a a pandora's box so to speak you know i think there are more and more people that can get access to a lot of the data they don't understand necessarily what creates it um so it's one thing just to have a lot of information it's nothing all together to actually use it to impart some kind of change on an athlete for the you know for favorable benefits so um I, i think that's one of the challenges that we're doing now is there's you know the industry is getting a little bit more diluted um and you know that's that's true of everything right we we've, we've seen that with just about every discipline out there whether it's you know functional range conditioning or z health or posture restoration institute or dns or a- anything right there are, there are good and bad practitioners under every single discipline people have dug really really deep in the methodology and others that just barely start to grasp it you know just enough to be dangerous i think the same can can honestly be said of a lot of the stuff that's happening right now in you know, in, in baseball and data collection and, and how they're, they're coaching people with throwing programs and, and mechanic stuff. So, you know, it's, it's like anything else, there's perks and there's drawbacks to it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting with baseball and this, just the, that sport in particular, I know they all are a little bit, but baseball, especially with the data driven element. Uh, I, you mentioned uh, something at the weight room and the, the general competencies. And I had a couple of weight room questions for you. Yeah. Uh, the first one is how, how has getting into the specifics of pitching and mechanics and the positions needed to hit, has that been like a big change on your weight room program in that time period following, or at least has that had an impact on what you're looking for athletes to be able to do in the weight room? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think ultimately what we're trying to do is we're trying to prepare our athletes, not just for the specifics of our sport, right? Whether that's pitching or hitting, but we'd also want to prepare them for, you know, a chaotic world, right? The lack of predictability. Like we don't know what's going to happen when you run to first base, right? You might have to do a head first slide to come in under a tag. You might have to, you know, sidestep a first baseman who's coming up the line. You, you might have to do a lot of different things. So um, I think we want to always prepare our athletes for an element of chaos. So, you know, historically speaking, what happens in the weight room, we get a lot of sagittal plane dominant bilateral exercises, things like that. And, you know, certainly my background was in powerlifting, you know, so when that's your background, you have to emotionally separate yourself from, you know, all that stuff that's been fun for you, or has been, you know, top of mind awareness for you. Um, we realize that rotational athletes are, are different beasts, right? We, we can look at the spines of NFL linemen and compare them to spines of, you know, elite golfers and baseball players and, you know, one is, you know, very, very, you know, bendy and great for rotational stuff. And the other one is really just kind of like locked in to, to candle compression. These are markedly different things. So, you know, when that kind of goes down, you, you definitely start to change your approach. Um, you know, there's certainly a point where you get strong enough. Um, you need to train other competencies. You need to train a lot more rotationally. Um, you know, we look at you know, just the, the core positioning that, that's needed to, to effectively transfer force and then, you know, rotational patterns. We look at the need for scapular upward rotation. There's so many different things. So, yeah, it's it's definitely forced me to, to change a lot of what I do. And, um, you know, like 
to, to be honest, like, I think there's so many, you know, coaches out there who hang their hat on, you know, this is how much our guys squad and so much of our guys deadlift and, and don't get me wrong. Like peak power is important for sports, but if you walked into a major league baseball room, like in a locker room and watched a lot of guys walking around with their shirt off, you'd be sorely disappointed, right? If you got any time there, you know, their, their 60 time or, you know, look at what their, you know, best squad is or something like that. You're going to be probably pretty surprised. Like these guys are successful for a variety of different reasons. A lot of times they're traits and their characteristics. So it's up to us to figure out what we need to optimize, you know, and, and above all, it's how do we make a move officially so they can do it over, you know, 162 games. Yeah, I like what you said about emotionally distancing yourself from your own background. I think it's really yeah. easy. Even me, uh, not uh, me not having a powerlifting background, but a jump training and plyometric background and wanting to I mean, plyometrics are good, but there there always comes a point where this the certain, you know, a certain intensity is not conducive. I I was going to yeah. I'm curious how has your thoughts on like max effort lifting and strength and the implements that you use changed over time in your journey uh, from powerlifter and just getting started to working with pro baseball over the years? Yeah. I mean, certainly there, there are principles of building strength that are, that are common across, you know, multiple disciplines. Like, yeah, we're not taking a lot of one RM attempts and things like that, but you know, things like heavy triples and stuff like that can be great. Um, you know, I'd say in terms of implements, we, you know, we use safety squat bars a ton. We've got giant camber bars. We've got the spider bar, um, transform bars, a kind of safety squat bar. So, you know, we lose a lot of those implements. Um, so those have been, you know, kind of carryovers, bands, chains, stuff like that, that we've utilized from the powerlifting world. Um, even though, you know, I wouldn't necessarily call them powerlifting exercises or everybody exercises. Um, but you know, I, I think that journey that I took opened my eyes to some different ways that, you know, we can train people, but I can come back, I come back to it. It's, it's not hard to get people strong, create a good environment, coach technique and be patient. Athletes get strong. The question becomes is how strong is strong enough? And are we chasing strength to the exclusion of other qualities, right? You, you and I both know that if you've got an athlete with a 550 deadlift, the, the amount of work it takes to get to a 600 deadlift, that might be a year and a half of training. Um, you know, in that year and a half, what other things could you work on? Could you train much more rate of force development? Could you work on elasticity? Um, can you optimize mobility a little bit more? There's all these different ways that you can make people better. Um, is it worth devoting all of your recovery resources just to that? Yeah, no doubt. Um, and it's interesting to hear it. Yeah. Like the, some of the variations that you've used over time and, and how, uh, just like, I, I guess, yeah, the distinctions between some of the typical powerlifting movements, are, are there any of those movements that you still do use? Or if a player has a real strong preference towards something, I mean, it's like a typical yeah. powerlifting movement. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. Our guys will still use squat and deadlift variations. I mean, I'd, I'd say the overall majority of our guys deadlift in some capacity, unless we have someone who's in extreme scapular depression or someone just doesn't handle bilateral loading. Well, um, you know, we tend to use a lot more probably trap bar than we do straight bar. Um, but you know, we have athletes that squat. Um, my guess is that probably 50% of our, our pro athletes squat, you know, a lot more like axial loaded single leg stuff. Um, you know, we'll, we'll do a little bit of box squatting here and there to give guys some variety, maybe cycle it in for a month and then take it out. But, um, you know, we're not benching any of our guys. In fact, we don't really even do much dumbbell bench pressing, maybe a little bit here and there. It's a lot more like we call free scapula pressing, landmines, cables, push up variations, things like that. Yeah. I was going to, the kind of in the tail of the, the, what do athletes do knowing like the mechanics, knowing the positions these athletes get in and throwing and things like that. Yeah. Is there any things that you mentioned lunges? I mean, is there anything like along those lines? It's like, you really need to be able to do this movement pretty well in the weight room to be robust. 
Yeah. I, you know, I, I certainly think there's a place for, you know, an adequate amount of single leg stability. Like, you know, it's a, it's a big red flag for me. If I'm, you know, if an athlete can't do like a reverse lunge with a front squat grip with 185 pounds or more, like that tells me that, you know, you need a lot more single leg proficiency. Like I think, you know, all of our pro guys should be able to deadlift 405 and, you know, for reps, you know, on, on a trap bar, like that's not hard to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll tell you this, like one of the things I find myself doing more than ever, and it's, you know, in part because there's, you know, guys like Nick Winkleman and other great coaches out there who are putting out really good stuff on, you know, the words we use and, and how we coach. But, you know, I find myself creating context with respect to the baseball world. You know, like if we have a guy doing a split stance cable press, you know, I'll just be like, think glove side fastball, right? What do you have to do to throw a glove side fastball? Your scat needs to get around, around your rib cage. You've got to get, you know, front hip pullback. And it it just changes the way that conceptually they move. Um, and it's not, it's not perfectly you know, uh, specific to that pattern, right there, you know, there may not be as much layback, whatever it is, but, um, you know, those are, those are things that I try to use a lot more now. You're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster. Yeah. I love that idea of drawing context in throughout the, especially it's probably more of the auxiliary movements. I think the big lifts, it's probably a little harder to draw specific context, but yeah, all the other things in your program and being able to do that, especially in a specific population. I, I definitely, I can see uh, like that creation of positive and associative feedback loops and how that is a big thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one, one question, Eric, that I'm excited to ask you, cause I actually, I have, uh, I don't remember how many years ago I got it, but I got a, an old, uh, it was a, not a DVD set, but a DVD of, of several lectures and training the shoulder. And yeah. for a guy who's been in that game for such a long time, so familiar with the anatomy, everything that goes into it, all the systems, uh, what yeah. are some ways that your shoulder, your view on, on training and keeping the shoulder injury, injury free has evolved over time? Yeah, I think early on your, your influence is always, you know, to some degree, the physical therapy world. And I think one of the things that we see in the PT world is, you have to think about what the majority of their patients are, you know, outside of a really athletic population. Most of the time they're seeing, you know, grandma rotator cuff repairs, things like that. And what you're going to do for a, you know, a 65 year old man who's been sitting at a computer for an entire career after his shoulder surgery is actually a lot different than what you need to do for, you know, a lot of your, your athletes, athletes that are in extension rotation sports. So, you know, I think one of the things that we saw early on, and, you know, I was guilty of it in early in my career is you thought just down and back, down and back, get the lats strong, you know, basically get the scapula locked in place. And you realize that all these guys to throw a baseball to, to preserve that good ball and socket congruency, that the scapula needs to upwardly rotate. Um, so, you know, cueing a lot more uh, stuff where you're actually differentiating between just aggressive scapular retraction or depression versus the posterior tilt you want to get from lower traps and serratus. Um, I think that was a game changer, you know, certainly like looking at the concepts that, that Sarman puts forth in terms of movement impairment syndromes at the upper extremity, looking at scapular depression and downward rotation and how it impacts some of our other training. So I was lucky to have a great mentor, Eric Schoenberg, who's our physical therapist here in Florida who, who trained under Sarman. And, you know, he's really helped me a lot in that regard. Um, you know, the concepts of free scapular pressing, like, you know, we're in a sport where your shoulder blade has to move, you know, in open space. You can't just pin it down on a bench and expect it to magically carry over. That was a big one. And I think a lot of our rotator cuff stuff, right. It, you know, we would do a bunch of cable and band and, you know, sideline dumbbell stuff. And, you know, you realize that, you know, when you do a lot of stuff with your elbow at your side, you're not actually training it in a functional position. So, you know, you want 
you know, to be strong in the positions that really matter. So, you know, we've, we've spent a lot more time up at 90 degrees, um, you know, training, not just cuff strength, but also cuff timing, you know, rhythmic stabilizations and range holds being strong in that laid back position that really matters. Um, all those are really, really big, um, emphasizing upward rotation, getting serratus going, um, you know, and you know, even beyond that, I would just say like, uh, I'm, I'm fortunate. My business partner, Shane, um, in Florida is, is, the, you know, one of the best manual therapists I've ever seen. I mean, he's an incredible, um, and Shane's worked. If there's a major league baseball player that you've seen pitch on TV, Shane's probably worked on him. He's worked on Serena Williams, you know, just incredible, incredible, you know, not, a, not just an anatomy, but a feel like, and some people can just feel tissues when they're right, they're wrong. So I think, I think Shane's gotten us looking a lot more at the fascial system, you know, where he'll treat a, a left hip and a right shoulder will feel better right afterwards. So looking at a lot more of the, the fascial lines and how it impacts the movement we have. And um, I think that's just made us better and better. So once you, once you understand how a specific joint should, should move, getting it more integrated into to longer patterns that, that, you know, have a lot of carry over to what we really do. So. So it's a million different things for sure. Yeah, and I'm sure that question really could be a whole podcast or series of episodes too, yeah. really digging into each one of those little points. I know, yeah. I, I don't remember how many years ago I had read it, but it was Mike Robertson's article on Teenage of Places, but going back to, to read it, it was yeah. on upward rotation of the scap and, and how important that was for balance. And I think yeah. we so often think like balance is just in the, the bench press plane or something. And yeah. And, and that's, that's another thing I would say that I've changed. Like it's, you know, we've always been taught balance your pushes and your pulls. Like, to be honest, when a lot of people do more vertical pushes, they often feel better because it drives freedom of motion of the scap. And when you do good, like landmine presses or even overhead presses, stuff like that, like um, my shoulder doesn't handle like traditional, like military pressing well, but if I get on a landmine press, I can sell out for the dream and it feels great. It actually feels a lot better. Whereas you know, you get people that get really lat dominant. They do a lot of vertical pulling. It gives them more problems. So I would actually argue like we should be looking at free versus fixed scapula pressing, you know, how much vertical versus horizontal pushing and pulling. Like it's, everyone needs something a little bit different. So the concept of like, oh, two pulls for every push, like, yeah, maybe it works great for, you know, Joe Smith who sits at a desk all day, but it's not going to be right for everybody else. Yeah. I found it interesting how you talked about the, the lats, um, like in the, when you when you just started right like that being and that kind of probably fitting with the push this the typical like push pull and balancing things yeah. out uh, but yeah like that being it's just it's really interesting how that's all changed because yeah when the lats are overpowering and they get tight and extension patterns yep. and everything that goes with that it's just it's it's really interesting i i was going to ask you a little bit about too um and and this hit home for me as well because it was about the time i had read mike's article and i was it, there was like this light bulb moment where I'm like looking at some of my tennis players. We were doing we were doing just barbell overhead press, but the guys yeah. who had had shoulder issues were so painfully weak at that movement. Like I could barely believe it, and and I was that it was at that point I'm like, okay, like this this needs to become a, a bigger thing in in my program. But you had mentioned too like the differences between like your your shoulders aren't meant for that movement, but the landmine allows you to. Uh, do really well at it. And you mentioned, uh, I think scapular free versus fixed pressing. Could you go into that a little bit? And then I have another yeah. uh, overhead weight room question for you. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, we talk about anything that allows your shoulder blade to move. So that would be a, a landmine press, a cable press where there's nothing that's, that's holding it back. Um, you know, for me, that's a free scapular pressing. Obviously push-ups are a great example. You know, I, I think the fixed stuff would be more of like your bench press, your floor press. You know, everybody thinks floor presses are healthier because you don't go down as far, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I really don't like floor presses because your shoulder blades are still just stuck against the floor. Like I like freedom of motion. And you know, this is 
I mean, this isn't new. I mean, like Alvar Meal talked about this many, many years ago. Um, they did a lot more upright stuff, things like that. So, you know, that for me, that's a very important discussion that, that we have to have is, you know, what's allowing the scab to move freely. But I think, you know, to your other point about like the overhead aspect of it, like we have to also appreciate the vector of the resistance, right? So if you're doing a barbell military press or, or even a dumbbell press to, to a lesser degree, the, the load is coming directly down from gravity. When you look at a landmine press, there is absolutely a, an angle to it, right? And, and you can even, um, you know, kind of appreciate this. I, I encourage everybody to try it out. It does feel markedly different. It's what make is why you can use more loading on a landmine press and all that. Um, so I think we have to appreciate that sometimes going directly to an overhead press, even though some of these people may need, uh, you know, some free scapula pressing, that might be like calculus when they haven't even done algebra. Like it's putting them in like the, the absolute most vulnerable position. Um, and I'd argue for most of those individuals too, like whether it's a tennis player or a baseball player, a lot of them have an element of structural pathology in there that, you know, they may stink overhead because they've actually got an undersurface cuff, you know, tear that, that makes it harder for them to get there. So I'd rather give them a, give them a chance to be successful in a safe environment and you can still develop a great training effect from it. Like how often are you, are you arms directly overhead under load and in, in athletics? It doesn't happen often, but in many cases you have to brace against an external resistance like you would on the landmine press or something like that. So to me, it, it actually is much more functional. Yeah. That's where my, those shoulder, those shoulder presses definitely transformed into landmine presses over the <laughs> subsequent years after just figuring some things out. It definitely, it definitely resonates I, with the, so is there a place where uh, how often are you letting players i'm sure it totally depends on the player too do do work or what is the place for fixed scapular work then uh, within training i mean it's probably it's obviously not the optimal thing but is there still a place for that do you still let people do yeah, it i mean certainly like in any scenario where you need to put some muscle mass on somebody right like you know you can obviously move more weight when you're locked into place like that so you know by all means if you're a football player like have at it don't be shy like i doesn't really matter for soccer players and things like that. But, you know, if you want to get people, you know, a, a stronger, like that's, that's absolutely an inclusion. And I'm not saying you got to exclude it for everybody, but you know, my world is overhead athletes. Nobody cares how much they bench. It's, it's literally an inconsequential thing. They care how hard they throw and how big their bank account is. So, um, you know, like that, that, those are the mindsets you have to have with coaching is you have to separate yourself from the things you really enjoy. Yeah, definitely. Uh, in, in terms of just watching how an athlete moves in the gym or in a weight room setting and you're watching their shoulder and they're watching, you're watching how they go throughout their presses and things like that. Is there any things that tend to indicate that an athlete's in trouble? Like if they don't clear some things up, they could be in for a shoulder injury. Yeah. I mean, you know, what I tend to watch out a lot for is like, and it's hard to describe in an, in an online context, but uh, you know, I, I look at where the movement comes from, you know, certainly watching out for any kind of like heavy lumbar extension. Anytime people go overhead, like that's a, that's a pretty good sign. They're not in a great place. That would be a lot of arching of the low back, the ribs flare up. You know, I, I'll watch for how well the scapula upwardly rotates. Can I see that, that inferior medial border? Does it get around like the inside middle border of the scapula? Does it get towards the armpit or does it kind of stay stuck down? But you'll often see what I would call like the robbing Peter to pay Paul. So you'll often see like a scenario where the glenohumeral joints and the ball and socket, the, the ball will ride up on the socket excessively because the socket doesn't move on the rib cage enough. So we'll often see people that get a lot of arm motion because the scapula isn't moving enough. So those are things that you just need to get out ahead of. Eric, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned like looking at uh, baseball players in the locker room in the sense of being in shape. And I think that so it was, it was, um, I forget what player it was. It was like in the sixties back when, 
basketball and baseball, you might play two sports and it was more of a thing. And there was some, play, oh, I forget what his name was, but he said, he's like, I have to take a month to get out of shape enough to go play baseball after playing basketball. <laughs> so, I think it was John Crunk that said, we're not athletes, we're baseball players or something <laughs> like that. But I, I actually just heard a really good podcast with Michael Lewis, who wrote Moneyball, who said that one of the things that compelled him to write the article was that he was in the Oakland A's like locker room and he just he saw these underwhelming physiques over and over again he's like i just i have to talk about why these people are professional athletes what makes them good um so that that part was intriguing i mean it's not the norm don't get me wrong like we have these people are much more athletic than i am mm-hmm. like you forget about it like these are the, the best of the best and you know in a sport and you know they're the top point oh 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 one percent that actually make it and get paid well to do it but um you know it is it is an intriguing discussion yeah, that, that idea was, it led me to the last question I had for your last topic. And that's your take on work capacity in athletes, especially baseball, right? Like athletes who they're not, it's not a heart rate sport, but it's a sport of repetition. Mm-hmm. And how do you go about um, the topic of work capacity? And I, I'm sure baseball too, there's all the old school, the, the running mentality and everything yeah. that goes with that, of course, that uh, we know is outdated. But what's your take in that area and, and building that in baseball players? Yeah, the, the first thing is I would tell you is... Um, I'm a big believer in the research certainly backs this up. Work capacity is incredibly skill specific, right? So just because I have great work capacity as a lifter and I can handle lots of singles over 90% and not get burned out, doesn't mean that I'm going to be a great rower, right? Lance Armstrong was the best cyclist on the planet and became like an average marathoner, right? Within the, within a year. So clearly the, those things don't magically carry over. So just because I can thrash somebody on a Versa climber or a rower or whatever it is, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to carry over what happens on a baseball field, right? With that said, I do think there is a, a very important need for a, a strong aerobic base, right? Um, you know, because that allows us to bounce back between pitches, between, you know, sets, uh, between training sessions, you know, the majority of our life is spent in an aerobic world. Um, and I think, you know, For most athletes, like if you get a resting heart rate under 60, you're probably in a pretty good spot. We also know the aerobic base is is pretty easy to maintain, you know, outside of really elite populations. Like if you just need to be good enough, by all means, train it. Here's what I'll tell you. Um, We have a draft prospect this year who I've been working with since he was in high school. Um, He's at a major university, um, basically pitched at 93 to 95 miles per hour this year for the most part as a relief pitcher. Um, He would close for this Division I program. Um, season wrapped up obviously because of COVID, you know, he only had, I think three appearances on the year. Um, and he basically, because that happened, like, you know, the season ends and he's allowed to do his own thing now. Right. So he's doing his own lifting and we were able to get him on a good aggressive throwing program. Uh, he sent me a video of his bullpen from the other day, he hit 99 twice. Right. And, and what was the difference? Yes, it was training. You know, yes, it was a new throwing program, all that. That's a big jump. Like that's an elite velocity that became ultra elite, like top, you know, 1% of professional baseball players. And what it really comes down to, they stopped running him into the ground. Hmm. Like he was doing that in and out. Like it was just beating his body down. So he was able to display the fitness that he probably already has. So, you know, for me, work capacity is a very specific discussion. And, you know, I would actually even argue like I'm as a baseball guy, I'm, com- I'm, I'm, uh, qualified to speak on baseball work capacity but if you gave me an mma guy or you gave me somebody in a different sport it's going to be markedly different you know so what your tennis players need are going to be totally different than what the baseball guys do so um you know i think you always have to take that very specific approach Um, as a general thumb in my world and this is a really gross simplification train high or train low right i'm not talking about elevation or anything like that i'm talking about like either stay at a lower intensity 
and build the aerobic base. And that's like the most boringly slow cardio it is. I like to do some mobility circuits or go and train intensely. Be 90% plus in terms of your sprint work, you know, throw the crap out of the med ball, run fast, jump high, all that stuff, lift heavy things. Just don't spend your life at 75% of max heart rate. You know, I've seen so many athletes that have interfered with their development just by pushing that long, slow duration cardio. Yeah, it it's hard to believe that the the running using the you know running as conditioning excessively still exists so much yes. in baseball. Uh, yeah, it's crazy, especially when it's used for punishment. Like yeah. if you have to use that for punishment, you recruited the wrong athletes. Let's be honest, or you draft the wrong athletes. So it's it's your fault, not theirs. <laughs> yeah. I like the. Um, you said mobility based circuits. It reminds me a little bit about like track and field, uh, like working conditioning with sprinters. You don't want to run them for their conditioning because they're sprinters. So yeah. people often do just a so- assortment of body weight exercises and keep yeah. the heart in a certain place. I imagine um, that's probably pretty similar to what you're doing. Like it's it's I mean, it's mobility, but it's enough to keep the heart rate up. Right. It's probably what are some elements in there? Yeah. I mean, I think Charlie Francis pioneered a lot of this stuff, too, with his high low models, you know, in the past. And, you know, I think the other thing too is like the concept of like microdosing. That's something that gets missed. Like you can train to be fast in limited volumes. Like you can run starts, you can throw the med ball on a regular basis. These are things that aren't crazy stressful. People, people get wiped out when you push them really, really hard with high volumes of top speed sprinting and stuff like that. So, you know, you can microdose it, but you know, for us, the majority of our stuff is more mobility circuit based. And I've actually had guys wear heart rate monitors over the years just to kind of see how these things typically fall and, you know, get a little bit of like a sample size of what, you know, guys do in terms of, uh, you know, like their heart rates on the, as they do these circuits. And for the most part, they all, you know, do a pretty good job. You'll get guys actually that go too fast and then the numbers jump up a little bit more on them. Um, but what I love about that is like, you're getting other benefits, right? It's not like you're just, you know, basically getting their heart rate up, but you're also going to see changes in, in the quality of their motion. You're going to see better joint range of motion, more stability in the range of motion they already have. So, um, you know, we can work on balance. We can do some med ball stuff, you know, different than, you know, obviously our power development stuff, but it just opens a lot more doors for you than that you wouldn't get if you just told them to go for a jog. Yeah, for sure. Especially with baseball too. And the, the mobility requirements and all the, and everything that yeah. goes with it. I just see that being so beneficial. It's a, it's a high amplitude, low variability movement. Um, if you look at pitching or hitting, right, it's high amplitude because you look at like a guy getting down the mound, he's sacrificing the passive restraints of the, of his lead or his trailing hip because he needs so much hip extension. There's extreme hip shoulder separation. There's tons of internal rotation on the front leg. So it's high amplitude, but you do the same thing over and over again. In fact, if you have variability, like you're less likely to be successful. So we need to give them that variability in their training. We need to accommodate the fact that they need to have a lot of amplitude, but we need to give them some exposures to other things, particularly with how asymmetrical they tend to be too. We can, we can compete against that a little bit when we do good, good stuff on the side. Yeah. Yeah. And I know, I know uh, our time is just about up today. I, that's, that's another point that I'd love to <laughs> expand on is the asymmetry, yeah. especially a pitcher, right? Who's been throwing a particular yeah. way. I mean, do you work, is that like a big, like someone who is asymmetrical throws their right arm? I mean, is I suppose there is at least some need to reverse that. Like you're never going to completely reverse it, but at least addressing it regularly is. Yeah. I think you, you know, asymmetry is normal in many cases. It's what makes them successful. I think what we need to be cognizant of is does it become excessive? Right. Um, what I can tell you is just speaking anecdotally, like, right. Obviously like posture restoration is something that's awesome. It's mm-hmm. influenced our philosophy a ton and I encourage people to check it out. You know, I, I think there's a lot of elements of PRI that allows you to compete against, 
you know, the, the asymmetry that sports throw at you. You have to remember too, like, you know, right-handed individuals tend to have more extreme asymmetries just from an anatomical standpoint. PRI digs into that deeply, but they also live in a right-handed world and they play right-handed dominant sports and things like that. So they, they'll re-ingrain it. A lot of your lefties kind of like find ways to work out of it. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're inherently a little bit more biased in a good direction. You know, you get guys who throw lefty and bat righty and vice versa. Like those are, um, you know, obviously things you have to look at. So I always just try to look at the athlete that's in front of me. Um, and I, I want, first and foremost, I want to make sure that they have adequate stability in the range of motion that they've already got. Right. That's a, you know, core F- FMS, SFMA concept is, you know, attack those things, um, first and usually get some good downstream effects. So I always try to do that first, but, um, I don't get freaked out by asymmetry just cause I've seen some pretty crazy stuff where guys have been healthy. I mean, I've seen guys with outrageous scoliosis presentations who have made a bunch of money in the big leagues. Um, so I, I just try to look at what's in front of me and, and take a rational approach to it as opposed to generalizing. Yeah. I love it. I love how you've been able to incorporate and blend so many different schools of thought, you know, the stability and then FMS and PRI and everything that goes with it. So I, I know, okay. um, I know our time's uh, limited today and, and I know you have to get going, Eric, but I told, I really appreciate uh, the talk today good. and all sharing your knowledge with us. Thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it. All right, that wraps up another show. I'm signing off. Uh, quickly, before we go, a couple things. One, if you enjoyed the show and could leave us a rating or review on iTunes or Stitcher, we would totally appreciate that. Secondly, I just wanted to give another shout out to our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. They have an awesome blog, tons of uh, training pieces, not only for a large gym setting, but also for individuals. So uh, personal timing systems and bar speed monitoring units and muscle stimulators. They really have a diverse store, so be sure to check them out and see what they have to offer. And we will see you guys next week with another great guest. Have a good one.